Welcome to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they are able to overcome or transcend. On January 17, 2015, Stanford University swimmer Brock Turner went to a fraternity party. The interim details are unimportant, but the resulting action was that he raped an unconscious woman outside that party. He was arrested, charged, tried, and found guilty of three counts of felonies, including assault, with intent to rape. He faced 14 years in prison. Brock Turner's father testified at the sentencing asking for leniency for his son because, as he said, his son should not have to go to prison for, quote, 20 minutes of action. And the rapist Brock Turner served only three months in jail. Our topic today is men and their role in preventing domestic violence against women. So why have I started with a quote about rape? Well, this is relevant in my mind because of the reaction of the father. He argued his son had a promising future, and why make him go to prison because of 20 minutes of action? What kind of an example does this set for his son? I think we can guess, given that his son thought it was okay to rape an unconscious woman. But what is the role of men in general in addressing violence against women? Let's unpack this. Men are the aggressors in 90% of intimate partner violence cases. Many cases go unreported, and many behaviors that are in fact abusive are not considered when we discuss domestic violence, like emotional abuse. Research tells us that abuse tends to run in families or get passed down over generations. So, fathers who are abusive around children or to children have boys who tend to grow up to become abusers themselves. Not always, but often. Often enough that breaking this process can be a critical part of addressing domestic violence. Violent families aren't the only situation which brings rise to violent relationships and violence against women. The rise of toxic masculinity has contributed to an increase in violent acts against women as well. What we know is that when boys and young men have models or positive influencers, who reinforce the importance of having respectful, healthy relationships with women, they are less likely to become violent or abusive in relationships with women. Who are these influencers? Coaches consistently rank as the number one positive influence on today's youth. Also, men who view women as equals are less likely to commit an act of sexual assault. In my interview with this episode's guest, we discuss the personal story of one man's unexpected journey 
and what you might say was a calling to get involved in becoming an influencer for boys and men to help them develop respectful, healthy relationships with women and to engage with women to help them heal from the pain inflicted from their experiences with intimate partner violence. Coming up next, my interview with Kenton Bell. He is an activist, an academic in training, and a researcher studying how to engage men to prevent violence against women. Welcome to Women Transcend Kenton. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I am really glad to have you lend your expertise on this important topic. So today we're going to be talking about the role of men in addressing the issue of violence against women. And this is an area that you have extensive experience in research and studying and working. Can you tell us how you got started working in this area? Well, the, the truth is uh, I've been I've been very fortunate to have a lot of women in my life provide me direction. So I, I went back to school later in life. I, uh, I didn't go back to university until I was in my late 20s. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I went back to UNC Asheville, which is in the mountains of North Carolina in the United States. Now, I have to say the United States because I'm currently in Australia, but uh, a Carolina boy through and through. <laughs> yeah. But when I was when I was at UNC Asheville, I was doing a degree in sociology and another in anthropology. There was a healthy relationship summit on campus and it was happening during Valentine's Day week. And the goal of it was to try to to get the students to understand ways to have consensual relationships, to have healthy sexuality. And uh, it was a really great discussion. But and during that time, they had people who were there from the local rape crisis center, the local domestic violence shelter, the police department, the counselors on campus. It was a great event. There was a young lady sitting next to me and she said, what if you deserve it? And Someone on the panel asked her about it. She said, well, what if I make my boyfriend mad? What if what what if I'm I deserve it? And then they went along and, and they gave her some very helpful advice. They told her she didn't deserve it. No one deserves to have these issues in their relationship, so on and so forth. But the conversation went on. And then a couple minutes later, this young lady got up and left. I didn't get up and go after this young lady. No one else in the room went after this young lady. Uh-huh. At the end of that event, um, Helpmate, the local domestic violence shelter, was looking for volunteers. So I went up to Helpmate, the domestic violence shelter, and said, I'd like to volunteer uh, to fix things. I, I like to hammer nails and turn screws. And they said, sure, they took my information down. So I couldn't get it out of my head that that young lady said, what if you deserve it? That's just not something I've ever thought about before. That ate at me then and it eats at me now. It's been <laughs> almost a decade 
and I, I still think about her. Yeah. So I wound up showing up at the domestic violence shelter, and this is where my life literally started to change. I should explain that Helpmate is a, a hidden shelter. You don't know where Helpmate is located until you need their services. For the safety of the women. Correct. For the safety of the women, it's hidden. Helpmate itself does help men, it's important to note, but men themselves cannot stay in the shelter overnight. While I was at the shelter, there were several women that really impacted my life, and those, their names are Jody, Joanna, Anne, Christy, and Joy. When I started working at the shelter, I began as I started to be the one who would work up front helping people in and out of the shelter. Now, I realize that this is audio and you can't see what I look like, but I'm, a, I'm an above average gentleman uh, that might be looks a little grumpy <laughs> at all times. I promise you, I, I might have a grumpy exterior, but it's all it's all marshmallow on the inside. But I was worried about the impact of me working at the working on the inside of a women's only domestic violence shelter and how that would impact the clientele. But it was explained to me by the wonderful women there that it was something that they were trying to actively work towards. And that was involving more men on the inside of the domestic violence shelter to help women become more comfortable around men once they left the shelter. Uh huh. So they were infinitely more intelligent than I was. I, I thought I was going to scare the women there, and but I was, I was part of a plan. Uh, now, I don't want to pretend that there weren't some incidences where the, the ladies were at first taken aback that I was there, but I was there for about two years, and I became kind of part of the woodwork. And while I was there, it, it truly took over the way I thought about my purpose in life. Before I started working at the shelter, I always knew I was going to wind up in academia. I just had no idea what I was going to do. And there was a, a lady there who said to me one day, says, Kenton, you're either going to do this for a year and a half to get something good on your CV, or you're going to do it for 30 years. And I had no idea what she was saying, but I do now. And from my time there, it became my the, the source of my undergrad sociology degree. I did a, a research project talking to the women there about how they felt about men like myself coming into the shelter and trying to work in the field to help to prevent violence against women and how they felt about that. Because the truth is, and I'm, I'm sure this is, is no surprise to many who are listening, men will come in and they just take up space. Men will come in and they will get a lot of unearned praise. Uh huh. This happens to me quite a bit. I get I get plaudits. I get pats on the back for things that women have been doing since the dawn of time. And the truth is, I, I infinitely infinitely benefit from the work that I do. And it's not fair that I get rewarded more than women do. Can I just ask? Do you think that that is just an implicit part of male privilege? It is an example of male privilege, but it needs a little more nuance. There's just simply not many men that do this work. So it's just the outlier effect. Uh-huh. But absolutely, I get infinite benefits for the work that I do that women who do the exact work that I do 
will never get because I'm a man. Okay. So I'm infinitely privileged because of that. Yeah. But while I was at the shelter, the ladies took the time to really help me understand the way men could be used effectively. And the truth is we, we have to have men in this work because men cause most violence against women. A small amount of men who repeatedly cause this physical and emotional abuse against women repeatedly throughout their lifetime. Now, that's not to say that institutional violence is not correct in this instance. That's a different situation altogether. When you're talking about violence, it's very important that you name quite specifically the types of violence that you're talking about because they operate on different levels of power. So my, my undergrad sociology work was about trying to understand how the women at the shelter who had a infinite amount of experience within the sector felt about the increasing amount of men coming in to the field. And there were some positive messages, but there was also people who were understandably concerned. And it really helped me understand that as a man, I need to listen more and observe and be useful, but understand that I was a guest in their house. And the ladies at the shelter, they, they truly gave my life direction. They answered my questions. They helped me understand a world that I couldn't fathom. I've never experienced violence in my own life. It was completely new to me, and it, and it radically changed the way that I see the world. And while that was my sociology study, trying to understand how women felt about men coming into the shelter and engaging in efforts to prevent violence against women, my anthropology degree was to do a visual ethnography of the domestic violence shelter, where I went in and, and wrote about the interior of the shelter how they were trying to create a sense of normalcy within the shelter. So if you've ever been to Helpmate, it actually, if you walk in, it feels much like someone's home. It was a very intentional, and it's, it's a wonderful, relaxing place. So uh, the visual ethnography tried to explain this. And sometimes when I present my visual ethnography, the things that people find most interesting is there's a picture that says resources for animals. I mean, this is something I would have never thought about, but a lot of people will not, men and women, will not leave abusive relationships because they're afraid their abuser will take out their anger on their animals. So they stay for the pets. Yep, that's right. And, and that, that would have never dawned on me until I saw that. And then another photo in that visual ethnography that people struggle with is there's a picture of the clothing room. And I would try to explain that a lot of times the women are literally leaving with nothing. And they have to have clothes to not only live in the day to day life, but also they need clothes to go for job interviews. So the, the wonderful ladies there, particularly Christy and Anne, they took a lot of time to answer my questions and we became really close friends. And I think about them all the time. And the truth is, now that I spend most of my life in academia, <laughs> I think I'd give it all up any day just to be able to go back to the shelter, just to, to be able to help people move in and out of the shelter and, and fix broken toilets. And I sometimes feel that I'm too separated from what I'm doing now. 
I know that the research that I do is important, but I, I miss being hands-on and being able to see it every day. So I know that you've done a lot of research since your time at Helpmate. Can you share some of your thoughts on the importance of the role of men in addressing domestic violence? So before I graduated, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. So I started to research organizations around the world that tried to engage men in preventing violence against women. One of the organizations is the White Ribbon Campaign, which started in Canada in 1991 in response to a massacre in 1989 where 14 women were shot. Three men, at the behest of two of their female friends, started the organization. That organization since then has spread around the world. It's now in over 60 countries. The largest organization by participants, by formal participation, is in Australia. So I approached White Ribbon Australia with a research project idea. I was interested in why men decide to engage to prevent violence against women, the challenges they encounter, and how they overcome them. Basically, I wanted to know how we could get more men involved. My idea was that if I went out and talked to the men who do this day in and day out, we could figure out ways to not only get more men involved, but get more men involved longer. But the underlying thing in it here is, was I was hoping we could figure out information from these men about ways to mitigate issues where men are coming into predominantly female spaces. The data from the research included 86 interviews and then 296 ambassador surveys. Now, my partner within the surveys was a young lady named Claire E. Seaman, who I met down here in Australia. I could not have done the project without her. She was my partner in every way. And from my work with her, what we did, we did a process evaluation on the ambassador program but instead of academics coming in and telling an organization what they need to change, our goal was to ask the men who are actively a part of it, men, many of them who have been part of the program for over a decade, some of them actively involved as a pro-feminist for 20 or more years, what they felt needed to be changed in the organization and why they were doing what they were doing. And some of the key things that we found was that fatherhood is one of the key ways that men understand their role in this field. Over and over, I would talk to the ambassadors, and once I asked them about their children, that's how they could understand their motivation to get in this work, and that's how they could fully express why they do their work. I would ask some of the men, had they ever experienced violence in their own life? And then they would say no, but then later they would be talking about their kids and they would say, well, I grew up and, you know, my dad would yell at me or I would get spanked or so on and so forth. So I, I don't want that to happen to my children. So these men were not able to conceptualize their own abuse, but they knew that they did not want their children to go through that abuse. Through fatherhood, these men were able to express their feelings about masculinity and wanting to change the world in a positive way that they couldn't when they were using their own experiences as the lens. But the moment you ask about their kids, their walls came down 
and they were able to express themselves fully as being their motivator for the involvement. Basically, they're wanting to ensure that their kids did not encounter the pain that many of them experienced as children. Now, that's really a, a critical point you just made. So the so one of the, the key ways to draw men in and involve them actively in decreasing domestic violence or violence is to leverage their self-identification as a parent to help them see the impact of violence. Yes, it, it's all about meaning making and reflection in a large way to get men involved in this work. It takes time. Men have to start at a certain, uh, men and women, it, it, it doesn't really matter. To be actively involved in any kind of social movement, to make it real, meaning making has to happen through time, through reflective practice. And what I found were these men were perhaps not able to reflect on their own childhood, but once they saw the future through the eyes of their children, they could. And so there's several organizations around the world who are actively trying to engage uh, fathers. And one of the biggest is actually called Men Care, and it's a global fatherhood campaign. And their mission is to promote men's involvement as equitable, nonviolent fathers and caregivers in order to achieve family well-being and gender equality. So it's not a new idea, but I do think it's an underutilized idea. And I think it's something that anti-violence organizations around the world need to embrace more. Some of the more positive messaging where we engage men as fathers and help them to have that meaning making and try to understand the motivation to do this work as to try to change the world for the future for their kids. Now, let me take this opportunity to ask you, I want to frame this in a political narrative that we have going on in the United States right now, whereby there are a lot of lawmakers, elected officials, who have been arguing that they don't want to have to pay for health insurance to cover maternity care because they don't have children. So in that kind of an environment, when this is the level of dialogue, how can we even begin to start approaching the idea of men having a role in addressing domestic violence? That's kind of loaded, but... That's a reality. And I think that's what, you know, this is what we, women are feeling right now. Well, it's completely understandable. You're absolutely correct. The truth is, and has it's always been, you got to name it and shame it to change it. So you just have to keep calling it out. You have to keep going out in the streets and protesting. You have to keep calling your representatives. You have to keep going out there and making change. But the truth is, it's a false dichotomous argument. It's not us versus them, it's, it's we. And it's not that we need to do this thing before we can do this thing. It's that we need to be working to do all of these things. Together. Exactly. We're, we're in it together. And the truth is, by us trying to silo our points and positions, that's the way we're able to be separated politically. 
So we need to figure out what we agree upon and move in that engagement direction. I'm certainly not saying it's easy. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's, it's very difficult. And I completely understand the rising frustration of women in the United States. It's, <laughs> it's shameful what's happening, but I'm an unrepentant optimist. And I truly believe that we are moving towards a more equitable place. I, I grant you that that's difficult to see at the moment in the United States, but I have more faith in us than I have in the politicians. But just remember, when we say the word politicians, we shouldn't be monolithic. I mean, it's very easy to say that the politicians are the problem, but those politicians were still voted in. So we need to go and change the hearts and minds of the electorate. We need to ask ourselves how we have failed to get our message across. Okay, so you're sitting, let's say, at a bar stool next to a guy and you strike up a conversation with them. How do you involve a gentleman in a discussion where you are able to get that man to understand, you know what, the relationship I'm in, I do have some responsibility in, in what happens? My method is probably a little different than most is that I try to engage people by living the example. I try to live as an ally. Now, don't get me wrong. I fail quite a bit, but, you know, each day I try to do a little better. And one of the ways that I try to live as an ally is I try to be really upfront about the work that I do and why I do it. And what I found is that men will come to me to talk to me. And I also I always wear a white ribbon. And what the White Ribbon is, as I mentioned from the White Ribbon campaign that started in Canada, White Ribbon Australia has this ambassador program. And these ambassadors are the formal representatives of the organization. And when I wear the pin, a lot of times men and women will come up to me and that'll start the dialogue. And I'm very, very fortunate that I'm a teacher. And I teach several sociology classes, introduction to sociology, in men and masculinity studies, and I also teach some education classes. Now, I try to keep my biases out of the classroom, but my students know of the things that I study, and a lot of times I'm able to engage my students with their questions outside of the classroom so that I can start that dialogue and we can make change. And when I'm out in public, a lot of times people will actually ask me, what about men? And I think it's actually a valid question. I guess the question is, like, I'm asking as a woman advocate for domestic violence victims, how, how can we all together work to involve men in this space? And maybe your answer is just you speak to the role of men, but... I think that women want to hear that. What is the role of men in addressing the issue of domestic violence? I think the role of men in addressing domestic violence is, is many different factors. And it's certainly not going to be one size fits every man because there's just different levels of understanding and then there's different levels of opportunity. The first one is just the bystander approach. You know, when one guy hears another guy saying something sexist or derogatory, they just take an opportunity to explain to the guy that it's inappropriate. 
And I think the key here is that we take the time to explain. I'm just not sure that the shaming method's actually working. Now, if someone is being actively offensive, sometimes you need to act quickly and you need to shut that down. But I always think you need to follow that up where possible with a conversation. I have found that people respond infinitely better if I explain to them my point instead of chastising them. So I think the first step there is by men being active bystanders. Out in public, if they see something, they say something. The second level of the bystander approach is being active within your family and your community and letting other people know that you're available for the conversation and to have a long-term conversation where people can come to you to ask questions, but you can also calmly explain your position. The other step that men can do is use their power to make a change put their money where their mouth is to start getting actively involved in politics, donate to organizations that are actively trying to make a progressive change. The other one is being an effective ally. While my primary research is on ways that men can be engaged to prevent violence against women, the truth is men need to understand that in a large part, that means listening. That doesn't mean talking. And it's very difficult for some men to do this. But the key here is that we, we know that we want men to do certain things. We want men to understand their privilege. We want men to understand different power dynamics. But we also need to, A, let men know that they need to listen so that they can take in the wisdom from the women in their lives. But B, we also need to create active learning opportunities so that men can learn these threshold concepts. And can you explain that, threshold concepts? Well, okay. So threshold concepts are sometimes called threshold knowledge. And it's basically the core concepts that once a person understands them, it completely transforms the way they perceive an issue. It completely changes their ability to reflect on the issue and therefore react to the issue. So it might be something that makes the issue real to them and it gives them kind of an aha moment. Absolutely. That's a, that's an infinitely better way to explain that. Um, it's that aha moment. And this goes back to fatherhood. While fatherhood may not necessarily be technically a pedagogical version of a threshold concept, I think it serves as a threshold place or a liminal space that men are able to understand this better. And these threshold concepts that we want to engage with men are very important, but we also need to create opportunities for men to learn them. And that's where I truly think it's really important for men in their personal lives within their families and the communities to be not only able to have these conversations, but being open to have these conversations. And I'm wondering also if both women and men have a role to play in making it safe for men to feel that they can be involved in these discussions without having self-doubt or without it causing them to question their own masculinity or, you know, the bravado that comes with being the alpha male. 
you can be engaged in these conversations and still be confident in your manhood. Absolutely. One of the most destructive things that happened to men in the United States and around the world is this notion of toxic masculinity, that we need to live up to this hegemonic ideal of what a man should be. I mean, all you have to look at is the high rates of suicide for men in the United States, and you can understand that there's something that we as a society are failing to do for young men and older men. And I'm going to tie in here the alt-right, because, you know, this toxic masculinity is very much a part of the alt-right movement. And where did it come from? It came from these mostly young men who were at least self-identify as sort of disenfranchised. And I think they overcompensate by exaggerating their masculinity. I think that's true about some people in the alt-right, and that's true about a lot of different men. And, And the truth is, we need to find out how we have failed to speak to these young men. What is happening in their lives that this is their outlet? What is happening in an angry young man's world that they need to respond to the world in such a destructive manner? It's very easy to blame the opposition because they don't agree with their point, but we need to understand truly why they think the way they do. And if you want to change hearts and minds, then you need to understand their perspective. And that's very difficult. I'm not saying it's easy, but we need to let men know that it's okay to let the barriers down. And that's men and women, men and women working together to try to understand how these issues arise and how we can successfully have conversations that will lead to lasting change. Wow, uh, that's great. I don't even know how to follow that. I guess in wrapping up, what advice would you give to a woman who's listening who is raising boys, maybe adolescents, teenagers, young 20s? How would you encourage them to make a safe space for those young boys and men to understand their role in this discussion? I think the first step there is to not reify the same sex and gender roles that were perpetuated to get us in this place to begin with. So we need to let young people experience the world. We need to let young people go through that long process to figure out what their identity is. And we just need to make sure that we are giving advice and support and letting them know that they're going to fail, they're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. That's part of it. And I truly think one of the keys is to try to increase the rate at which young men have female friends and have that open and honest discussion about what it's like to be growing up in a different society. We're looking at the world now through eyes where society is changing so quickly that we have difficulty understanding it. That's good. It's absolutely true. And and I think that that is at the heart of a lot of this, you know, hatred of the unknown is that things are changing so fast. I think one of the keys for parents raising young men these days in the United States is 
the acknowledgement that we don't have the right answer and that society is changing at such a at such a clip that it's very difficult for us to keep up with it and that it's confusing the gender and sex roles are shifting every day men are confused about what's expected out of them women are confused about what's expected out of them and it's it's changing every day and it's that open and honest acknowledgement that we're in it together and i think that's what's always lost in a lot of conversations is it comes down to an us versus them and it's not it's it's we we need to quit framing the discussion all the time about what men should do and what women should do but what should we be doing now this is coming from someone who's a men and masculinities scholar in training and one of the reasons that i wanted to focus on men and masculinities is so that i could understand why men have sexist attitudes, why some men grow up in abusive homes and become abusers themselves, but why some men grow up in abusive homes and don't. So it's very important as a researcher that we correctly frame what we're researching so that we can get accurate results that have reliability and validity. But it's also important that we do not overly apply our research and that we understand that we're all humans. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes (laughs) down to it. At the end of the day, we're we're not that different. Yeah. And that we have more discussions about we instead of us versus them. Would you say that, that for adolescent men, young men, having girls and women as friends might serve as a threshold moment for them if they are able to empathize, they understand the lives of their their female friends and maybe empathize with what they they go through? I certainly think it should be considered one. And I base that on my own personal experience. A large amount of my friends are women and they've had such a positive impact on my life. Uh, And I go back to the women at Helpmate, the domestic violence shelter. I mean, their guidance and their friendship and their compassion literally gave me my life's purpose. And even now, when as I'm getting my education and and moving towards being uh, an academic in the future, most of my friends are women. And I go and I talk to them about issues in my life. And they give me honest and constructive criticism. And frankly, they keep me honest as an ally. I mean, there's several ladies in my life that I've sat down and had a conversation with. And was like, if, if I say something wrong or I say something inaccurately, call me out on it. Let me know that it was inappropriate or that I didn't quite understand. And I want, I want to have a, an honest and, and accurate friendship with the the ladies in my life. And frankly, most of the time, that is me listening a lot more than I'm talking. And I think also for parents, it's good to reinforce that it is healthy and normal to have friendships uh, with members of the opposite sex or gender. And, um, you know, it's easy to say that. I think it's a difficult area for an adolescent to traverse. But it seems like that would be a really important place to start is healthy and safe friendships across genders. I would completely agree. Okay. 
Well, I, I really thank you, Kenton, for lending us your time and your expertise on this very important subject that if you watch the news, it seems to be more and more timely and poignant every day. So I thank you very much for your time and for your fabulous work in this area. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate the work you're doing as well. And I look forward to the future episodes. This week's Woman in the Spotlight is the unnamed victim who was raped by the Stanford University swimmer, Brock Turner. In her incredibly powerful and raw statement, read to the defendant in the courtroom at the conclusion of the trial, she said, quote, To girls everywhere, I am with you. On nights when you feel alone, I am with you. When people doubt you or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you. So never stop fighting. I believe you. Lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. Although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today, you absorbed a small amount of light. For this courage and incredible eloquence to be a powerful example, not just for women, but for men, of the importance of being a lighthouse, I thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. You can do us a big favor and tell at least one other person about our podcast and how to find us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure you won't miss an episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player. If you like a particular episode, it's super easy to share directly through Twitter or Facebook. A big thanks to my guest, Kenton Bell, for joining us for this episode. And of course, to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode. <laughs>